Welcome to the De-School Yourself podcast, healing the 15,000-hour infliction of public school. Hosted by Zach Slayback and Jeff Till. This installment is called Jumping Off the Conveyor Belt, De-Schooling in Action with T.K. Coleman. In this episode, which is about making real change in your life, we decided to invite Zach and I's good friend, T.K. Coleman. T.K. is one of the brightest and most enthusiastic and positive people I've ever met, and we thought we'd finally end some of the doom and gloom we've discussed here on the podcast with some happy news about how to get better. Here's uh, T.K.'s formal bio. T.K. Coleman is the Education Director for Praxis, a 10-month apprenticeship program that combines a traditional liberal arts education with practical skills training, one-on-one coaching, academic mentoring, group discussions, professional development, workshops, and real-world business experience. T.K., you have a typo on your website. It should be real-world business experience. T.K. is a native of Chicago and a resident of Los Angeles, He graduated with a bachelor's degree in philosophy and comparative religion from Western Michigan University. Wow, that's where I went. Uh, And has worked as a licensed financial advisor for American Express, a corporate trainer for National Seminar Group, and a teacher trainer for the continuing education divisions at Graceland University and Rockhurst University. TK is an avid student of self-determinism, creativity, and philosophy. And you can find his work at tkcoleman.com as well as at discoverpraxis.com. So let's start with self-analysis. And maybe we can even take this from a personal perspective. This actually took me a super long time to do because I didn't know I was actually uh, struggling with my, my, my school wounds. So mm-hmm. what it actually took probably 10 years of sort of going through the dark, you know, stumbling through the dark and trying to figure out why I had certain frustrations in my life. And I deeply wish I could have started right from the beginning knowing I was doing a self-analysis of my schooled self. Do either of you have similar experiences? Well, for me, I know that one of the things that was really useful and continues to be useful to just get an idea, try to find, find a mirror for myself to see the direction in which I am moving is using the the context in which I find myself, right? Is using the people in which I, I find myself associating with because I think we are on a certain, almost, almost an unconscious level drawn to other people who are of a similar level of uh, consciousness of what they're doing in their lives. And I don't mean that in like a, a, a spiritual crystal woo-woo sense. I mean that more in like, Certain people decide to live consciously. Certain people decide to not live consciously. And sometimes that only applies to certain parts of your life, right? Like you can find people who live very consciously in many aspects of their life, but in their education, they're very, very passive about it. They're very, very unconscious about it. And I I remember watching my peers when I was in college who were very much my peers. You know, there were people professionally and academically working on a very similar level to me, but watching them go down a certain path, both uh, educationally, psychologically, and professionally, that was just very weird. And I realized when I saw that, I I took a step back and I thought, 
oh, this is actually happening to me too. And it's only because I'm seeing it in other people that I even become aware aware of it in the first place. And we talk elsewhere, you know, about the importance of self-esteem and the effect that school has on self-esteem throughout an individual's life. This is one of the points that one of the authors we referenced there, Nathaniel Brandon, makes repeatedly is when you're talking about issues of things like self-esteem, people of high self-esteem are attracted to people of high self-esteem. People of low self-esteem are attracted to people of low self-esteem. So if you can tease these things out, this level of consciousness out in other people, I think it's a useful way of getting an idea of like where you are yourself, right? Without falling into the trap of the subject trying to examine itself. Yeah, I, I think that's very interesting. You know, uh, Jeff, you talk about kind of what sounds like a, a deliberate uh, introspective approach. I think for me, this was a, a, a sort of a, a journey that I hadn't planned on. I, I never set out to de-school myself. It, it's something that happened as a result of pursuing other goals that forced me to become conscious of uh, a certain kind of relationship that I had to concepts like power and authority that needed to be revised if I was going to succeed at, at achieving these goals. So, you know, for instance, with with the work that I do with Praxis, I noticed that when participants did not do th things that I felt was good for them or I felt like they needed to do, I noticed a tendency within myself to try to find some way to make it mandatory. That was like my automatic instinct. It, it wasn't to acknowledge that maybe participants aren't showing up for group discussions because they don't like the guest or because they have something better to do or because I'm not doing an excellent job at creating value for them. I immediately went in the direction of, oh, these kids don't really know what's valuable. They don't really know what's good for them. I gotta find a way to coerce them to show up and do this thing that's really good for them. And the way I need to do that is create some sort of mandatory rule. So I noticed a tendency in myself to motivate through mandatoriness. Um, I, I also noticed a tendency to use the creation of rules as a way to make my life easier. And then I would turn around and judge the goodness or badness of people based on how good they were at you know, at conforming to those rules. Uh, I, again, this isn't something that, you know, I, I think I would have ever thought was true of myself had you just asked me point blank. But these are sort, sorts of tendencies I began to observe. So um, one of the things I, I, I definitely believe is, is a detrimental con uh, consequence of, of the schooling mindset is that rules are brought into existence not for the good of the many, but rules are brought into existence for the most part in order to make the the few who have to do the work of managing the many in order to make their lives easier. So when you ask yourself questions like, why is it wrong to chew bubblegum in school? Uh, why is it wrong to drink a can of soda in your school? Or why can't you talk in class? Most of these rules are designed because it just makes things easier for the teacher, right? Like walking in a straight line, for instance, isn't inherently good. But if I'm in charge of transporting a group of people from one room to another, having them walk in a straight line might be good for me. So you rely on rules to make your life easier, which is not a problem at all. But then what happens is you begin to judge the people that are not good at following those rules as being bad people, poor learners, and so forth. So I started to notice these things, and I had 
lots of conversations with Isaac about it and Zach about it. And I said, you know, I, I'm noticing that I, I'm trying too hard to motivate through mandatoriness. I'm, I'm relying too much on rules. And when people fail to follow these rules, I'm not looking at their behavior as morally neutral. I'm looking at them as bad people. And this is when I began to read some of the works of different thinkers in in the realm of alternative education, like mm-hmm. like uh, John Holt or you know J.T. Gatto and so forth, and I began to realize how steeped my philosophy of life was in authoritarianism. And at that point, I began to adopt that more deliberate approach that you talked about, Jeffrey, where you say I have to purify myself of of this kind of reliance upon coercion manipulation and threat making and I, and I have to start appealing to people's self-interest and I have to start creatively incentivizing them by by showing them how what I want them to do relates to what they want to do so that's kind of the direction that that my journey took does that answer the question it does and we're, we're nicely uh, already seg- segueing into the second part which is getting rid of school behavior and the school thought process uh, just going back again to my struggle is I had uh, joined Price Waterhouse as a consultant, um, out, you know, a few years out of school, and my entire career path was I, I was intensely concerned about what my peers thought about me and my parental approval, and that I was doing something that society would deem to be worthwhile, even though it was enormously uh, frustrating and made me horribly unhappy. Uh, and just night after night, I would sit and try to ponder of how I could sort of uh, have this make sense. You know, wh- why was I so unhappy when I was doing everything that I was supposed to? It took me so long to figure out that it was uh, both, an, uh, you know, an ext- extrinsic uh, looking for approval and, you know, a, a following of authority. And it was all just external things that were making me think I had to behave a certain way as an adult. And that took an enormous amount of effort to realize that, you know, it, that I, I needed to have my, um, my behavior come from inside to have it be intrinsically motivated and not uh, some, uh, a product of what other people thought of me. And so, I mean, that, that would be one thing I would, I guess we would, I would encourage listeners to do is to look at their own personal relationship with authority. Uh, and to reassess your obligations and the things that you think you have to do. Uh, also to decouple your identity from either your school or your university or your job. I, I think that that also took me, that was a big lesson for me too, was to uh, stop identifying myself as what I did for a career, uh, especially when the career didn't make me happy. And that's very common. You go to a cocktail party. Um, or meet uh, some new neighbors, and you know the first thing that almost comes out of your mouth is like, you know, what do you do? Um, what do you do for a living? You know, every, everyone tries. And to And that's make something themselves. that that comes from when when you're a very young age. What do you want to be when you grow up? What are you majoring in? Where are you going to college? Right? You just draw a lot from these people just based on their answers to those questions. I mean, I I find it myself at times when I meet a new person who is in that like eighteen to twenty five range. How do I broach the conversation with them? <laughs> and I, I realize I'm much more aware of it than most people are. So I, I can't imagine what it's like if you don't even if you're not even aware of that. Well, you know, I, I think an important aspect of de-schooling is actually learning how to 
control conversations. I think the problem here stems from the school mindset because in school, when when you are questioned, you are obliged to answer. And in fact, the legitimacy of the question is as presupposed. So if you leave a, a question unanswered, for the most part, you are either punished with uh, a poor marking or you are treated as if you are being negligent. But one of the beauties of adult life is that you actually have an option to, to not answer questions or to redirect a conversation along preferred lines. And you'll find that people are often quite accommodating of this once you exercise this right in a non-defensive way. In fact, most people's questions, whether it's at cocktail parties or getting to know you at a bus stop or at an airport, whatever it is, most people's questions are just a reflection of unconscious habits. They they don't they don't feel wedded to those questions. So for instance, when I'm done with work for the day, I usually like to talk about something other than the way my work day went. However, it's natural for people to ask at the end of a day something like, hey, how was work today? And if you're not careful, you'll find yourself talking about something that you don't want to talk about. Or let's give another example. When I first moved to Los Angeles, I came here with film industry aspirations. You can't pursue something like that without everyone back home knowing about it. Now, I've been here for over eight years. My aspirations ha are entirely different. I'm focused primarily on entrepreneurship. Without any regrets, I'm completely uninterested in trying to make it as an actor. Yet, when I talk with many people from back home, they will ask me questions like, hey, um, how's the acting thing going? And, and for the longest time, this was kind of like an awkward, uncomfortable thing for me because I felt like I had to do all sorts of, you know, conversational judo tricks to wiggle out of their answers or not sound stupid or apologetic or anything like that. But once I learned that I have the right to redirect questions in a non-apologetic, natural way, it made my life so much easier. So if someone says, hey, how's the Hollywood thing going? I can just say without flinching. Oh, man, we haven't talked in a really long time. I'm actually focused on entrepreneurship now. Let me tell you about my current project. Or if someone says, how was the workday going? Uh, how, how did the workday go today? I can easily say something like, you know what? Let's talk about something else, man. I mean, that went really well. But let me tell you about this movie that I'm going to watch tonight and, and something that my friends have been saying about it. And I think this is critical because one of the number one problems that college opt-outs have or that people have who are just in that process of deschooling themselves is how do I answer questions? And that dilemma is based on the presupposition that I, I have some sort of obligation to the question. And my answer is don't. Don't answer the question. Redirect the question. Re redefine the question. Only answer the questions that you want to answer. And if someone's asking you the wrong questions, say, you know what? I think I'd rather talk about this. I think I'd rather talk about that. That, that to me is, is one of the most important aspects of de-schooling your mindset. De-schooling yourself probably has to, people have to come up with a new relationship to risk as well. Uh, 13 years ago when I started my business, um, you know, it took me probably two years of, of just panicked contemplation to think that I could possibly do something on my own, uh, something that was self-directed, something where I was going to generate value in my own terms. And it was just completely terrifying to do and i think i think people are pretty nervous to do something like that to to go out and start something new but i was equally afraid of not being in that sort of compliant uh worker 
you know, worker bee relationship that I had been living for so long. And pretty much everyone around me told me I was wholesale insane to do anything else, but, you know, uh, stay in that, that worker mentality. So I, 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 I agree with you there that, um, changing your relationship to risk is, is very vital. And I think, I think it's worth a, a minute or two talking about how exactly, uh, that problem stems from the school mindset to sort of get a clearer picture on what we can do to, to work against it. So the school mindset is one that teaches you to look at your own curiosities in a very particular way, to either look at those curiosities as flat out responsible or to look at them as these sort of secondary priorities uh, that should take the backseat to um, objectively important things that are determined by authority figures. So if you are in school, there are these important things you have to learn. You got to learn the important stuff like mathematics or English or history, objectively important things that have already been decided by a conversation you were never a part of. On the other hand, if you're interested in something like Legos or video games or basketball, whatever it may be, that's, that's okay. It's okay to have that interest. And if you have some free time after we busied up your day with all sorts of homework and required assignments, it's all right to pursue those things. It's not evil as long as you don't allow them to get in the way of the important stuff. And, and, and you know what? Maybe the, the creative schools will even be ones that say, we're going to make it an effort to you know, give you 30 minutes a day or something along those lines where you can do that stuff that you think is interesting, you think is fun. And that breeds a fundamental mistrust of one's own curiosity. And learning to trust your curiosity and see where it leads you is one of the most powerful, liberating things you can ever discover. You know, of course, we have we have cliches like curiosity, kill the cat. But I, 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 li I like the retort of the one who said it was the satisfaction that brought him back. I mean, the satisfaction that comes from exploring your curiosities and seeing where, where they take you really can give you a, a, a new life. So there are so many stories, for instance, of people who achieved great success, created fulfilling careers, and created awesome lives, fulfilling lives, by just doing what they were interested in, not having some clear-cut answer to the question, well, how are you going to make money doing this? But doing what they were interested in developed certain aptitudes and attributes. It gave them self-knowledge. It gave them a sense of creativity. It gave them self-confidence. And those are the things that that are much more difficult to teach. Those are the things that more more likely than not will determine if a person succeeds at uh, succeeds or not. It's things like your self-esteem, your ability to solve problems, the relationship you have to your own mind, your your uh, the quickness with which you can learn new skills. And these are the things that you learn through play. I know that you guys uh, talk with Peter Gray and uh, he's an expert on this in, 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 in Free to Learn, where he talks about these sort of things. So most adults grow up, and they have all these curiosities, and they carry themselves as if, sure, my curiosities are fine, but it would be irresponsible for me to act on them. Or if I am going to act on them, I need to make sure that all of the objectively important things are taken care of first. And then if I have any time left over, which we rarely do, then maybe I'll indulge in a little bit of piano playing or basketball playing or whatever it may be. 
and and the unfortunate thing about that is by failing to take the risk involved in pursuing our curiosity we actually leave we leave undeveloped the most interesting parts of ourselves the parts of our, ourselves that are truly capable of making us special and what we end up becoming in the adult world is you know sort of mediocre versions of ourselves that could easily be replaced by someone that's willing to work harder so what can somebody practically do if they're listening to this, this all makes sense to them analytically, they know they're pretty risk averse and they want to they want to develop that muscle of taking more risks. What would be the first thing you'd recommend for them? Number one, do experiments and personal development that are exclusively oriented around something you're interested in. Don't try to do something important. Don't try to do something that will help you at school. Don't try to do something that will conform to some standard that will make your parents proud. Do something solely that's interesting to you. And when I say an experiment in personal development, I, I mean a couple of things here. Number one, do something consistently every day for a set period of time. Don't leave that set period of time open. Don't say I'm going to do it for you know, you know, know indefinitely or don't even say something like I'm going to do it for an entire year. Say something like 30 days. For the next 30 days, you, you, you can take your favorite website and say, for the next 30 days, I'm going to binge read articles from my favorite website. Maybe I'll read you know, two to three articles a day from my favorite website. Or it could even be a movie experiment. You could say, um, I'm really into romantic comedies or I am really into uh, you know, action movies or whatever it may be. Or, I, or I, I'm going to go down the list of Academy Award winners. Anything that you're interested in, it really doesn't matter. And say, I'm going to watch a different movie every day. Give yourself the opportunity to know what it feels like from personal experience to do something for no other reason than that it's interesting to you every single day for a set period of time. And I, I encourage people to write about their experience because there's something about documenting the experience that forces you to reflect on it more deliberately and and take note of the patterns that emerge in your mind take note of the patterns that emerge in the types of things that you're interested in take note of the ways in which these things begin to speak to you i know this sounds like very mystical language but uh george washington carver uh who found um i, be I believe nearly a thousand different uses for the peanut and who who um astounded the scientist of his time uh, was once questioned, how, how are you able to come up with these ideas when you don't have the same level of formal education as many of your peers? And he said, well, it's because I, I love this. I love what I'm doing. And when you love a thing enough, it begins to speak to you. And, 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 and I don't think you have to look at that in some literal sense, but it really is true when you give yourself the opportunity to indulge in a curiosity, to indulge in a passion, um, there will be unique ways in which it speaks to you. And I, I think the experiment personal development approach is good because what it does is it, it, it answers a question posed by our conditioned resistance and fear. And that is, but, but, but if, if I allow myself to indulge in a passion like this, won't it make me lose my job or won't it make me homeless? Won't it make me this irresponsible loser who never gets anything done? And that's the moment where you can say, no, this is just an experiment, not a religion not a lifelong commitment. It's 30 days. Let's experiment and see what happens. We need more room in our lives for experimentation, trying new things without getting married to those new interests. 
So this is easier said than done, though. A lot of really, a lot of people who are really, really highly schooled who I know, and I've even been caught in this trap myself before, they get through the, the dozen plus years of schooling. And when they come out the other side, they actually don't even know what their interests are. This, this makes it much, much harder to say like, oh, you know, indulge in an interest of yours that isn't related to school or work because they have spent the last decade or so just <laughs> creating all of their life around school or work. So I, I don't know if, if it's simply as simple as saying, you know, indulge in this interest if you don't know what that interest is, right? I don't want to get caught in like a turtles all the way down kind of thing as far as your interests Sure, go, sure. But this is something I've run into and surely you've seen this. Yeah, well, that's that's what sort of has to be untangled in in the schooled person's mind is so they've they've always needed permission to learn something. They've always been given uh, what they were supposed to learn. And once you realize that learning is something that you do for yourself, you're going to look at, you know, the subjects and the methods, uh, I think, a lot differently uh, than school. So just even, uh, you know, not having to seek permission to to learn something. Um, you know, if when someone decides they're going to learn how to play the guitar or they're going to start a blog or a podcast or they want to start a side business um, and or, or just develop a new skill for a new job. You know, these are, are, are things that are unavailable to anybody. Um, you, you know, you, once you realize that you're empowered to pick your own topics, then then the you know, the path to discovery is is is, you know, very sort of freeing and uh, and open. You know, so one one thing I I'd, I'd add to that as well is, I don't believe that knowledge of what one is interested in is is discursive knowledge. I believe it's visceral knowledge. I believe that you can very easily identify what it is you're interested in in the same way that you can easily distinguish between what's hot to you and what's cold to you. Certainly, you rely on. External experiences because you can't know if you like something unless you try it. Um, but most people have enough experience to have a pretty broad understanding of what they're interested in. No one can tell you if chocolate ice, tea, ice cream tastes good to you. No one can tell you if it tastes bad to you. You don't reason your way to it. You actually know viscerally if you like this. But, but here's the challenge. What happens is the schooling mind conditions us over the course of a lifetime to reject those sorts of things if we can't answer certain questions about them. Like, how can I make money doing this? How can I build a career out of doing this? And so it's not that we don't know what we're interested in, but we have learned to dismiss those interests as irresponsible or impractical or as things that only have the potential to be hobbies. And so I don't think the problem is identifying interests as much as it is giving yourself permission to follow them in a world where you're constantly being challenged to conform to a definition of, of responsibility that makes it impossible. And this is why I think it's so important to do experiments in personal development in timelines, to give yourself the assurance that this is only going to be a 14-day experiment or this is only going to be a 30-day experiment so that even if, even if it's not the most responsible thing to do, you're only trading in two weeks of your life, an hour a day, whatever it may be. Um, and what's the worst that happens? The worst thing that happens is you did something that was really fun for a month and maybe you gained a little bit of self-knowledge, but it wasn't what you thought it was. But there's a video by Alan Watts where he talks about what if money were no object. 
it's an exercise I've conducted with a lot of people. Most of you are familiar with it where you, you simply ask someone, what would you do if you didn't have to worry about being realistic and making money and getting a job? And I find that one of the reasons why we look at this experiment as cheesy is because people respond to it so well. It's, it's remarkably easy to do. But the reason we look at it as cheesy is because, once again, we quickly go into this mindset that says, but yeah, that's not the world we live in. Of course, that's not realistic. And there's a school mindset again where we have this fundamental mistrust of curiosity. We actually think it's unrealistic and irresponsible to indulge in, in those kinds of uh, exercises. And I think that's the, the greater difficulty. And you overcome that with practice. Yeah, we could also uh, sort of flip this over on its head and go with Isaac Morehouse's uh, book title is Don't Do Stuff You Hate. So maybe even if you haven't identified uh, what you would do if uh, money was no object, if you do start eliminating things that you hate and continue to ex experiment positively, uh, you, you can also improve your life that way. That was in, in my, own, my own personal experience, uh, getting out of the, the, uh, the corporate uh, mindset was much about eliminating things that I didn't like to do as much as it was finding things that I did like to do. I, I like that a lot. You know, an, another element of the school mindset that's related to this is the the assumption that success is best achieved through a linear approach. So the mentality here, you, you, you can see an example of this when when college students go go to university, they they are taught to declare a major as soon as they possibly can. Everybody says it's kind of OK to not declare a major by year one. Maybe it's tolerable by, by tolerable by year two, but you want to de decide your major pretty quickly uh, be because you don't want to waste any time, right? This is the school mindset. The earlier you can discover what it is you want to do, the better off you are because then you won't waste any time. Then you can follow this linear path. Um, so one interesting example I found of this is that of a musician who didn't become interested uh, didn't become interested um, in neurology until he was around like 40 years old and it was pretty much because he had a a, a failed music career and, and and I I'm having trouble remembering his name right now but I'll I'll be able to figure that out later but he he, he had essentially a failed music career he, he toured a lot did a lot of cool things but it didn't turn out the way he wanted it to be so he decided to go into neurology and because of his career in music this guy is able to say all sorts of interesting things about the relationship between the brain and music. And he's a highly demanded speaker, thinker, and researcher for precisely that reason. Now, had this guy taken the, taken the schooling approach to being a good neurologist, what he would have done is he would have identified as early as possible, maybe by age 12 or 15 or 21, that this is what he wanted to do the rest of his life. So he could have taken a linear path and not wasted all of those years being on the road as a traveling musician and so forth. And the assumption is he would have been better off. But it turns out that all of those years doing the nonlinear stuff, working in music and, you know, uh, being on the road, those are the things that actually made him an interesting person and allowed him to talk about neurology in a way that would be different from everyone else. Had he followed a linear path, he probably would have been just another neurologist. And so, Going back to this don't do stuff you hate thing, a part of breaking the school mindset is, is, is realizing that I don't need to follow a linear path. And that means I, I'm not only free to follow my interest, but I'm also free to let my interest follow me. 
that that as I as I orient my life around exercises and minimizing things that I hate and doing things that I'm interested in, these experiments actually transform you. They change the person that you are. They change your philosophy. They change your orientation. They change your knowledge of how the world works. And then what you're interested in also evolves. And the person that you once were when you set out to do this thing is now this much more interesting person who has all of these other cool things going on. And you now have the permission to follow that and the power that comes from doing that. So I, I think that's another uh, very, very critical point that's related to this whole topic of not doing stuff you hate, doing stuff you're interested in in the school mindset. Let's talk about um, taking control of your life. And I have, I have a list of things here. And the first two on the list are, are creation uh, and value creation and then entrepreneurship or the entrepreneur heart. And why I put these two first on the list was because I find that so much of adult life follows a, a school pattern of you know showing up when you're told to, uh, doing repeatable routine tasks that are on a list that were handed to you by someone else, uh, taking your lunch you know at, at 12 for half an hour, uh, you know, and then essentially going you know being told when to go home and stop, you know, stop thinking or stop stop producing. And what was a big shift for me, and I think uh, this is probably at the heart of the Praxis program, um, is sort of reinventing yourself to be someone who proactively creates value and has an entrepreneurial spirit, um, who wants to get out and you know, create outcomes that are, are unexpected, that aren't demanded of them, but instead are, are born from within. So I, I always find it interesting to, to assess a current problem in light of the school mindset from which that problem extends. So one, one, the primary way that we test knowledge in school is what I often refer to as the interrogation model of knowledge demonstration. Uh, this is when an authority figure or a group of authority figures ask you a set of questions designed to put you in a position where you have to prove to them that you are not lying when you said you did what you said you did, you know, so if the assignment was to read the catcher in the rye, then there are a set of questions you should be able to answer if you're not lying about that. And, and these questions aren't particularly aimed at making your friends laugh. They aren't aimed at making people's life better or helping people, you know, have happier marriages or anything like that. They're, they're, they're designed to do one thing to show that you were not lying that you were not lying when you said you read this text um, and, and, and to show that you engaged it in a way that convinces the authority figures that you paid attention to the, to the details that they believed were the important details. But that interrogation model of knowledge demonstration isn't mirrored by anything in the real world except the experience of being in a courtroom or being questioned by the police. In, in, in the real world, how do you use knowledge? You use knowledge to solve problems for people, people that might be very different from your professors or from your teachers. You use that knowledge in the real world by creating value for people. It may take the form of being a Jerry Seinfeld or a Chris Rock and using the way you understand the world to make people laugh, to forget about the jobs they hate. It may take the form of becoming an expert at fixing, you know, um, whatever it is that breaks down for people, whether it's psychological, whether it's physical, what have you. But in the real world, that's how you create value. 
by paying attention to people and not basing the value of what you do on what a board of authority figures have to say. You know, I, I always like to joke around and say, if you take a book like uh, Twilight, you know, uh, Stephanie Meyer, I believe, is the author of that. If you take a book like Twilight, you would be hard pressed to find any English professor or English teacher that would rant and rave about that book. Uh, and, and I'm sure now I'll get an email from someone who says, I'm an English teacher and I love it. But you, you'll be hard pressed to find uh, a consensus. Uh, you know, if, if, if you were to write something like that for an English class, you, you would probably, um, you know, not get high marks. You would probably get a lot of criticism. But the reason that book is a success isn't because it's pleasing to literature professor, professors or English teachers. The reason that book is a success is because it's meeting a desire. It's fulfilling a need among the people who buy it, even if the professors think those people are stupid. Now, when a lot of people hear that, they, they may have all sorts of things to say, and they may say, well, you know, there's more to life than creating value. There, there's more to life than just, you know, writing stories that teenage girls like. And I would say, absolutely, there's more to life than that. But the part of life that involves creating wealth is all about that. And that's something that you simply don't learn in school. And that's something that the school uh, that, that the schooling process leaves you unprepared for. So, so how do you develop that? How do you learn to be good at creating value? Well, first, I think in a competitive world where so many people are trying to create value, I think this goes back to what we talked about experimenting with our curiosities. One of the most important things is finding something that you have an advantage at. I, I think the phrase follow your passion has been so overused that it's lost most of its purity. But I, I don't think people should explore their passions because there's some sort of new age magic in their passions that is going to cause them to easily succeed. But rather, when people do things that they genuinely believe in, that they're genuinely interested in, they tend to work harder. And there is a correlation between hard work and success. It's not a sufficient condition. But there is a correlation. And people not only tend to work harder, but people tend to be more creative. People tend to make more interesting connections. They tend to be more unique when they're doing something that uniquely fires them up. So I, I think we have to bring that back into the discussion. If you want to be a value creator, then that means you have to make room in your life to experiment with things that you're interested in. But it also means that you have to pay attention to people in a different way. You can't look at people as your inferior or superior. You can't look at people as your authority figure or as your subordinate. You have to look at people as human beings who are just like you, uh, people who, who have the right to want whatever it is they want, and you have to take them seriously as that. You know, um, And you have to judge people not by uh, authoritative uh, bureaucratic standards when they talk about their desires. I, I think reading a book like Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People um, is a really great step in the direction of learning how to understand and empathize with other people's interests and desires. And if you, if you, if you can become a master of, of that, there's no end to opportunity because when you know how to find out what people's problems and goals are, which they happen to love to talk about, and, and you use your skills and interests to help meet those needs, I mean, that's the heart of wealth creation. That's the heart of success. Excellent. The, uh, the next topic I wanted to touch on was, uh, people's relationship with permission seeking and external approval because the school 
throughout its you know whole process is all about you know getting the gold star or getting the the good grade and it, it's always looking for other people's approval and i think a lot of people as adults uh, who are schooled continue uh, their relationship either with their coworkers, their bosses their parents their peers looking for external validation and so what do you guys think about that? I think that, that can be pretty damaging, but I want to hear what you guys think. It's amazing, right? Because you see it, you not only see it in really formalized contexts where people actually do build like whole hierarchies around asking for permission, right? Like politics, but you even find it, DK and I actually were discussing this recently. You even find it with people's own interests, right? So they have an interest, they have one that they've spent a lot of time maybe developing, maybe spending, uh, becoming an expert at, something like that. And then they decide they have to get some sort of approval either for going further in this interest or for getting a new interest. And they have to broadcast this. You see this on social media all the time, right, where somebody decides – whether it's with an interest or whether it's with something they want to do. I, I love when I see people will post an idea about a business or something like that online on, say, Facebook. And at first it looks like, oh, they're doing like market research to see whether or not people would actually consume the product. And But then even if there's a really great feedback from it, there's very rarely any kind of action on it. And it's almost as if what they're actually looking for, because there isn't like a central teacher that they can go to that can say, great, Johnny, you should go do this business or you're assigned to do it today. They want to find somebody who will give that stamp of approval on launching a new project, on becoming interested in something new or just in letting them know that, hey, I have new interests that – I might want to delve into that is one of the more pernicious uh, elements of permission seeking that I've seen personally is the way that it bleeds into these other aspects of what we're talking about, which is like pursuing your interests and pursuing them outside of work. Well, are they actually your interests or are they interests that other people have given you the, the check mark on? This is a very interesting question to me, especially when we ask, okay, how can someone de school themselves in this regard, you know, schooling kind of conditions us to value uh, the pat on the head, the pat on the back, the gold star, the good grade, the proud mother. Um, in, in fact, in fact, and I do not say this condescendingly or unsympathetically, but I think one of the saddest, saddest uh, observations for me is every year, that time of the year that we know as graduation season on Facebook, you see parents all over the world giving these uh, beautiful soliloquies about how proud they are of their child for graduating eighth grade or <laughs> high school or, or college. And, and that's not the sad part, right? Like I, I respect and appreciate and adore the, the pride that a parent has in their child. But when I look at those soliloquies, I think to myself, this is, this is the proudest they're ever going to be. For most of these kids, this is the proudest that their parents are ever going to be. They are never going to hear a speech like this made about them by their parents unless they win an Academy Award. And, and, and it might be the case that they'll hear something like this when they get married, but for most people, this is it right here, man. Like there's nothing you can do that's going to make your mom more proud than, than when you graduated college, at least to get that kind of expression of love. When you get out of college, you can go get a job where you're making six figures a year and you love it. 
and you rant and rave about it all the time, but you're not getting that Facebook soliloquy, man. I mean, that that's just different. That's just so different from graduating college or high school or whatever, whatever it may be. And so we really do value that and, and, and we are conditioned to value that. But I, I don't know if the solution begins with finding a technique to extricate oneself from that kind of conditioning. Because I personally believe that once you decide that what's most important to you is creating the results that matter to you internally, living your life without regret, and doing the things that are personally fulfilling to you, even if they happen to uh, cause others to worry about you, once you make up your mind to prioritize that, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not so sure if there is a technique. Once you make up your mind to prioritize that, your life begins to reflect that. I, I think the, the real more fundamental question here is what matters most to you? You know, um, if, if you really value uh, people respecting you because of your degree or because of what club you belong to or, you know, what organization you're a part of or, you know, you really value your parents thinking uh, of you in a certain kind of way. There's really no technique that I can give you that can change that because it's not an issue of technique. It's an issue of priority. It's an issue of what matters most to you. And this actually isn't just a school issue. You know, I mean, the, the, in, in the adult world, there are all sorts of ways that you can define your value by being affiliated with a certain organization or club. And I, I, I think it's more of, of each challenging people to ask themselves, you know, what's most valuable to me? What is most likely to lead to a life that I don't regret? What is most likely to lead to fulfillment? Yeah, how much how much of it that's interesting. How much of it you think is also uh, just being able to throw your hands up in the air and say, fuck it. You know, I don't, I don't care what you think about me. You know, I'm dropping out of pen. Uh, I'm quitting Price Waterhouse. I'm I'm starting my own business. I'm going to, uh, dr you know, take my kids out of school and homeschool them. You know, how much of it is just just readjusting an attitude where you consciously think I really just have to stop caring what these other people think about me? You know, I, I have to really stop caring that I have their approval uh, or that I'm conforming. Is there, is well, there any of that, to, you know, is there any of that in this just sort of for, more of a, a tough guy approach? For me, I, I found if I used if then statements, like if I allow these people to influence me in these ways, then this is the conclusion I come to. And when you do that, it, if you're doing it actually honestly with yourself, it's pretty scary, right? So I, I, I don't know. I, I found the uh, the kind of like screw it all uh, element to be empowering to a certain extent. So I, I think one good exercise when, when you're doing stuff like that is to begin with the recognition that if you're doing something that is bad for you or harmful or what have you, it's only because it's meeting some kind of need. That doesn't make it okay. An explanation is not an excuse. But I think one of the first keys to extricating yourself from the golden handcuffs is being honest with yourself about how the golden handcuffs are actually making your life better in some kind of way, even if that's coming at the expense of something else. So I don't believe it's possible to merely take a tough guy approach and say, screw it, I don't care what people think. You gotta ask yourself, wait, 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 wait. You've spent most of your life caring about what people think. That has a huge benefit. What is that benefit? So for instance, let's say you are living with your parents. You are old enough to legally go out, get a job, live on your own, and so forth. But 
Mom and dad pay the rent. You live with them. And one day, mom and dad require something of you, and maybe you don't want to play along. Maybe they maybe they have something that seems arbitrary, a rule like, well, you've got to be home by 1030, and you're 20 years old, and you don't think that's fair or, or reasonable. So if you feel some kind of fear or tension with standing up to them and saying, I'm not going to play by that rule, it's probably because you benefit greatly from playing by this rule. You're not stupid. You're not an idiot. You're not a loser. You you benefit from this. Like you are getting something really awesome. You are getting rent-free living from this. And you're not just going to wake up one morning and be a tough guy and say I don't care what they think unless you have a satisfying answer to the question, how am I going to survive without them? I think people who are tough guys, whether they go through this process consciously or not, are people who are aware of the benefits they're getting from certain situations. And they have either figured out a way to get those benefits on their own or they have developed the self-confidence to believe that they can figure that out as they go. But you can't walk away from something that's making your life worse unless you believe in your ability to find or create a better alternative. I think that's the key rather than just trying to use willpower. Yeah, well, I guess I'm I'm also thinking about not necessarily the person who's living at home, but the person who's already 35 – uh, and has their own income and everything, and yet still feels trapped by the expectations of others. Even then, though, Jeff, I, I would say the consequences are just as real. So let's take this is a pretty common problem, you know, with with your book about unschooling. How many people have read that book and or talked with you and said, "I like what you're saying, and it, it makes a lot of sense, but you know, it, it's just not realistic for me right now." So there are real consequences to it. Consequences that aren't necessarily good counter arguments uh, against doing it, but, but consequences nevertheless. So for instance, um, you might lose the luxury of being able to get rid of kids that you don't like for eight hours a day. That's real. That's not true for everyone, but school actually does provide a really great convenience for kids. I mean, it, it's pretty convenient. If I've got a place that I can drop my kids off to from nine o'clock you know, to about 3.30, that's really convenient. That's a huge gain. And anyone that wants to homeschool or unschool their kids is going to have to figure out how they will live without that benefit. Or how about the way neighbors treat you? You know, we still live in a pretty authoritarian society where you might be looked at as a weirdo. You you have a higher risk of being visited by social services to make sure that you're not some creepy person or some crazy person or some really irresponsible person. Um, you might also have neighbors who look at you as the odd family, the weird family. And, and that's not just a mental, emotional thing that has real consequences in physical space. Maybe you don't get invited anymore to certain types of parties. Maybe you are now asked certain types of painful, uncomfortable questions. And I think the only way you can get into that tough guy mindset of saying, screw it, I don't care anymore, is to either develop an alternative method for meeting those needs that are going to be taken away from you or developing the confidence to believe that you can figure it out on the go. Either way, however you address it, it has to be a purposeful analysis of, of looking at your relationship with permission seeking and external approval. And so there might be different ways to do it, but the one thing that you can't do is ignore it and you know continue to feel the pressure of of external approval 
um, without actually recognizing that that's the pressure you're feeling. Some people may come to this realization in an involuntary way, such as when they move a great distance or if they lose one of their parents or they somehow otherwise end up separating themselves from a permission giver. They suddenly realize the freedom that they felt from not having to seek permission and may be frustrated that they didn't try to erase their permission seeking before the move or the death or whatever the event was. I don't think that that's totally unreasonable either. I, this is uh, well known through, I, I believe it's David Data who has this idea that men should live as if their father has already died. And it's not like, oh, you have to live in this adversarial relationship with your father, but it's more so that you oftentimes live other people's lives or your life through what other people's expectations for you are. So I, I find that a useful a useful heuristic as much as it is a kind of grim and dark. And, yeah. and I, I also I also think it it captures the um, it captures just how deep it goes when we think about the benefits and consequences. And I think it can help you sympathize with people that have a hard time just saying, screw it, I'm going to live my life as I want. I mean, for for you to say that, and, 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 I, and I get what you're saying. I, I get that you don't mean that in any kind of cruel way. But it it shows how powerful of a force other people's disapproval can be. And it's not entirely a, a mental thing in the sense of I have this idea in my head that my mom disapproves of what I do. When people disapprove of us, there are specific sorts of things they say, specific things they communicate in words, in body language, in actions. And these things are really tough. They're not easy to live with. Um, and sometimes that approval, especially when you become addicted to it, that love you know, certain ways of interacting, uh, it, it can be really addicting and really, really hard to live without. And I, I think that just illustrates that point. This one is really sort of tactical. And I don't know if many people would think about it, but it's rethinking your daily schedule. And so many people are locked in to the, the school schedule that was set up, you know, where you have an alarm clock that tells you when you get up, even when you're not ready to go. Uh, you eat breakfast at a certain time. You all commute to the, you know, at work to the same time. Um, you, you know, you have lunch, then then you go home. You uh, anesthetize yourself with alcohol or whatever. Watch, you know, uh, watch a, a sitcom on TV and go to bed at a prescribed time. And there's so many other things that, that can happen during a day that you control your own. Um, you know, whether it's it's wanting to sleep when you want to, whether it's working only at your, you know, height, you know, productivity hours when you're in the flow, uh, whether it's taking time to to meditate or to uh, focus on your health and your body and exercise, um, you know, to spend personal time is I think a lot of people deny themselves the opportunity to live their lives how they want to because they naturally fall into the the conformist perspective schedule of society and I've, I've just personally found it extremely liberating I've, I went down to about a five to ten hour work week um, completely changed you know my, my personal obligations as far as work uh, wildly transformed my how my kids uh, you know taking my kids out of school uh, making sure my wife doesn't have to go to work uh, making sure I, I have at least two hours a day to spend uh, walking and swimming um, all of these things are you know at the very practical level, um, 
can were just huge for me in getting out of my, my school mentality. And part of that was also feeling the obligation that I had to keep that schedule. Um, you know, f feeling guilty if at, at 10.30 in the morning I wasn't at my desk uh, typing away uh, and instead doing something fun or, or interesting. Have you guys have you guys found that at all? That um, that charge of your your schedule on your own terms has helped your personal life? Absolutely, and this is a very difficult thing to do because I know exactly what you mean when you talk about that guilt associated with starting or ending the day at certain times. For many people, it's if I don't work until at least this time, I'm you know I'm I'm unworthy or. I'm not a hard worker. I haven't earned the right to exist. Or, you know, um, we, we have objectified getting up early in the morning as, as a an automatic sign of virtue. And so if someone isn't up by 6 o'clock or 6.30, they feel like they're lazy. They feel like they're unworthy. And the, the problem with that is this is based on a conformist mindset rather than a value creation mindset. And, and the value creation mindset, it's not a about how hard you look like you're working. It's not about how many hours a day you show up and hang out at a building. It, it's about the impact that your work has on others. And there are people that have a lot of impact, but they only show up at a building for a couple hours a day, you know? Um, or there are people that have a lot of impact who stay up really late or who get up really early or, you know, and, and, and live in all sorts of ways. And it can be really difficult when you've lived most of your life, being rewarded for showing up at a certain time, uh, leaving at a certain time, thinking about your day in a certain way, it can be really hard to, to break free from that and create your own structure. So for me, again, I, I rely pretty heavily on experiments and personal development to introduce changes in my life because these experiments make it very safe for me to fail because I'm not making a new year's resolution. I'm not making a long-term commitment. I'm not getting married to my new schedule. And yet at the same time, they challenge me to be disciplined because I'm committing to a predetermined amount of time. And no matter what mood I'm in, no matter how difficult it gets, I have to finish that out. So I always gain valuable forms of self-knowledge through that. So one of the ways I, I do this with my, my work schedule is I, I challenge myself every month to do at least one un unorthodox thing or at least one new kind of experiment with how I approach work. So for the month of February, I am experimenting with being done with my work days by 2.30. I'm still allowed to check my phone and my email for emergencies, but for the most part, by 2.30, I need to be done. And then at that time, grab a pad, grab a book, grab my uh, laptop, and leave my place and go write, go read, go do creative work. And I'm doing that for the entire month of January. This is extremely difficult for me because I typically work uh, usually until about 8 p.m. And even then, um, after my wife goes to bed, I'm usually up for a couple of more hours working. And, and, and there, there really isn't, you know, I, I, I kind of have those workaholic tendencies, if you will. And, and this can be very difficult for me to do because there's something about stopping at 2.30 that just feels so evil. It feels so bad. I mean, my gosh, if my dad knew about this, <laughs> you know, um, you think I was so lazy. It's really hard, but it, 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 it's comforting and it's assuring to know that, all right, 
this is only for a month. I'm not saying I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. I don't have to stand by this approach to work and say this is the right way. It's just an experiment. And who knows, at the end of this month, perhaps I will have achieved results that make me insist on continuing this, or maybe I'll learn something that says I I should change it up. But unless you commit to doing experiments that require you to make changes, you're not going to overcome that mental hurdle of of, of, um, approaching your calendar and your workday with a superstitious school mindset. You're just not going to overcome it. For me personally, I want to arrange my work in such a way that I don't have to, I don't have to react to my day, right? That's, that's, that is something that I have become a very strong believer in is if I feel like my entire day, my ability to craft my day is me reacting to certain things, then I have done a poor job designing my day. I have done a poor job designing my career and I've done a poor job designing my life up to that point. Now, to a certain extent, everybody has a job or has certain things they have to react to, right? Like family emergencies happen, things happen in work where you, you just have to do them. But if I find myself reacting more than I'm actually designing the day, then that's not a position I want to be in because, and I, I think that getting to a position like that does have something to do with getting into like the de-schooled mindset, because when you are going through school, you are reacting to everything. You're reacting to bells. You're reacting to a schedule that is set for you. You might have some say in that schedule, but it's mostly set for you. And you actually don't get this opportunity to design your day. So for me, you know, I like TK, I've, I've experimented with different things for a while. I was experimenting with waking up very, very early and getting all of my work done before 6 a.m. And I really, really liked that. Uh, but then there were other things I wanted to do in my day that in order to put them in my day, I would have to change the time at which I woke up. So that element, that reactive versus uh, you know active or designing is the mindset that I approach my day with. And I wouldn't want to live in such a way that I didn't have that ability. Mm. So this is this is a, a new topic I just put on, and I don't know if, if it belongs here. Um, but what about people's relationship with consumption? So what I mean is, um, if I use my own example, when I was at Price Waterhouse, the sole goal was was to get on the conveyor belt, and you know climb the lad the income ladder up and up so that in my mind I could, you know, have the, the, the two nice cars in the garage and the nice suit and uh, the expensive electronic gadgets and everything like that. And obviously when I made big shifts in my, my life, I had to rethink what I thought good consumption was as far as, you know, am I looking for a status Am I, am I, am I, am I trying to externally signal, uh, my achievements? Do, do either of you think that, that the sort of the, the sort of the typical American consumption mindset is, is a product of school and is, is something that could be examined or perhaps mitigated or changed in the, I, I think it's mind? easy. I think it's, this is actually a really good example of something that you can put into that, uh, reactive versus designing oriented framework, right? A lot of people buy things as they are reacting to people around them. They're keeping up with the Joneses. They're reacting to things in their lives that they aren't themselves controlling. 
And at that point, then you actually, your your consumption habits are a reaction to other people's actions, right? And of course, you could you could take this a, a level deeper. And TK, if, if you wanted to discuss this, I, I'd be open to hearing your thoughts on there's a certain mimetic element of it. You are m- mimicking what other people want, and they themselves are mimicking what other people want. But I find that for a lot of people falling into the the mindset of keeping up with the Joneses for lack of a better term is something that is highly oriented around them not actually knowing or maybe on more of an unconscious level how to have a designer oriented mindset with what they consume i think where we see problems in consumption it's usually a a means of compensating for a lack of involvement in the creative process. I, I, I believe that on the other side of that consumption coin is the creation coin. And I believe that in order for human beings to be fulfilled, in order for us to be whole people, we have to be both consumers and creators. We have to be open to benefiting from the creative efforts of other people, but we also need to know the joy and fulfillment that cannot come from from buying, but that can only come from producing, from giving, from sharing, from generosity. And so I think in cases where people are addicted to buying things, people buy too much, people's lives get filled with clutter, it's because that other side of the coin is being neglected. Uh, It's not that they're buying too much, but they're producing too little. It's not that they're orienting their lives around too much consumption, they're orienting their lives around too little Creativity. And this too can be traced back to the school mindset. And it, it comes down to one simple phrase that I give to people as advice very often, which is trust your taste. We happen to trust our taste very well as consumers. In fact, every single one of us likes things that other people make fun of us for liking. Um, we can all easily think of musicians or songs that we like that people in our our own network will make fun of us for liking. We can all easily think of foods that we like that the people that we love might not like. And we have no problem with this. We, we have no problem uh, entering the marketplace with full confidence that we will find clothing, music, food that will suit our tastes, even though the people in our family and uh, our network uh, mock us or make fun of us or tease us for this. We trust our tastes as consumers. But when it it comes to the creative process that confidence is lost we don't trust our tastes when it's time to create so for instance uh you might be into really weird eccentric novels um and at the level of consumption you have no problem no matter what your friends think going to buy these novels and finding them and reading them but when it comes time to sit down and write your own novel well what do people say oh that's a stupid idea nobody will like that and then they drop When it comes to writing their own songs or creating their own clothing line or starting their own business, people say, well, that's a dumb idea. No one will like that. We have no trust in our tastes at the level of creativity, but we have limitless trust in our tastes at the level of consumption. And I think that comes from an approach to education that primarily defines our value by our ability to consume, to consume content that is set before us and to not play a role in creating what the curriculum content will be. 
Um, and you know, um, I, 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 so I, so I think if you want to adequately address this problem of consumption, you can't go about it by making people feel guilty for buying too much or telling people that they just need to throw more stuff away because that's putting a bandaid on the problem. That part of their lives will self-regulate once the creative self is given permission to live again. I would recommend people to just take an examination of, of you know, what obligations you are setting up for yourself through what you consume, um, you know, whether that's, that's a car lease or your house or whatever. And, you know, just being sure that it, it is, uh, some, you know, you are trusting your taste and not, not just making these decisions based on what you think is you're supposed to do or what other, other people expect you to do. People that are good at saying, no, I'm not going to waste my money or my time trying to um, purchase meaningless signals of status so that other people could be impressed by me. People that are really good at that are people who have something going on in their lives that they genuinely feel excited about. And they don't want to waste time and money on other things because they want to invest in the things that they're really excited about, the things they really believe in. So I, I think it still comes back to overconsumption as a form of compensation for not having anything going on in your life that you feel genuinely excited about. It, it's similar to how I explain people's infatuation with gossip. It's impossible for you to feel that amazing over a celebrity that has problems unless you also feel like your life is kind of shitty at some level. That's why it makes you feel good. And so the key to addressing that isn't by trying to make you feel guilty over the delight you take in seeing a celebrity downfall. It's helping you become the kind of person who doesn't even need to see that anymore in order to be fulfilled and to do that without moral judgment. Um, and I think in a similar way, um, the key to dealing with the compensation problem isn't to make you feel guilty for it. Um, but if, if you are the kind of person who says, I got to drive this kind of car or I got to have this kind of job because other people are going to be impressed by it. That means you are the kind of person for whom that's the best thing you've got going on. Because if you had something better for yourself going on, there's no way in the world you would waste your time and money on that. But, but you don't have anything more exciting going on. You've got to cultivate some excitement in your life. How important is creating your own voice in the world to de-schooling? And what I mean by that is, is physically, you know, physically manifesting your thoughts, your original thoughts and ideas, uh, not as something that you have to do, but something that is empowering and sort of self-affirming. Well, for me, I have found that writing in particular, podcasting, you know, I, I love to hear myself talk, but I, I think that other people would rather hear other people talk than when I'm, when I'm interviewing them. But writing in particular has worked as a sort of it's almost like the fog lights of the mind is the way that I've thought of it is if I have ideas bouncing around in my head and I want to make them clear and I want to make them coherent to me, sitting down and writing is one of the best ways for me to do that. And over time, what that does is it allows me to actually develop my own voice. So I consume content. It kind of mulls around in my mind. I write about something that's probably related to the, that contact content that distills it into something that's unique as a combination of that content and the prior content that was in my mind that it was mulling around with. And over time that becomes the voice of 
sex layback, right? Of what I have developed through my ability to consume, my ability to synthesize, and then my ability to also create on top of that. And so writing in particular has been uh, especially useful for me. I have occasionally gone back and re-examined old writings of mine, and it's it's amazing not just how much better <laughs> everything gets over time, just from a pure mechanics perspective, uh, but how much a voice actually develops. Because prior to a, a certain point, of just consuming and creating enough there isn't quite a voice there but over time that a voice emerges i i really like the idea of what the process of finding your own voice can 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 really do for you to help you de-school your mind i think there are two very very important things that it does number one finding your voice helps you find your tribe and what i mean by that is everything that you are interested in everything that you regard as cool or fascinating is also interesting cool and fascinating to someone else but you don't really discover the degree to which that is true until you take the risk of putting your interest out there documenting what you've got going on in your life and what's fascinating to you and 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 sticking with that process long enough to receive the validation that comes from people saying hey I'm asking the same questions. I'm struggling with the same things. I'm moving in the same direction. And and this is very important because it's the fear of being an oddball, the fear of not having a place in the world that that does great detriment to people's trust in their own curiosity. Um, young people everywhere are constantly searching for the one thing they can major in, the one skill they can learn, the one thing they can do that will make sure they are not homeless, that will, that will ensure they have a place in the world. And school kind of conditions you to be overly preoccupied with security. And the process of finding your own voice can help you realize that not only is security, uh, the, not, not, only is security not the end-all, be-all that we make it out to be, but it's something that you can find outside of traditional circles, but you've got to use your voice and put yourself out there in order to realize that there's no other way. The, the second thing is, I think finding your own voice, uh, I think about Ash Amberger's book, um, You Don't Need a Job, You Need Guts. I think one of the greatest things that's missing in the world today is people who have guts, the guts to stand by something they believe in, the guts to be true to themselves, the guts to be authentic. And I think the process of finding your own voice, writing, it gives you guts. Because when you're in school and you write a paper, whether you get an A or an F, the thing that we take for granted is that you have a guaranteed audience. You have someone who's paid to read your paper. You have someone that's paid to listen to you. So if you're in an English class, you can write the crappiest paper ever and you're guaranteed an audience. Somebody's gonna read that because they get paid to do it. You don't have that luxury in the real world. If you write something in the real world that's bad, poorly formatted, uninterested, there's no one out there that gets paid to read your stuff. In the real world, you just get ignored. I, I remember um, talking to a guy once who expressed interest in starting a blog, and he expressed fear. He expressed fear that if he wrote a blog expressing his controversial political opinions that you know uh, he would be bashed by people on CNN and Fox News and so forth. And I remember Isaac saying, Isaac Morehouse saying, you wish, you wish you could be so lucky to be bashed by the people on CNN.
CNN or Fox News for writing your blog. What's more, what's more, most likely to occur is you will be ignored. No one will even know or care that your blog exists. And that is actually good for you because when you put your voice out there in the real world, real risks are associated with it. You not only get to be misunderstood and disagreed with and praised and loved, but you also get to be ignored. And there, and, and there is a process of character transformation that only happens to those who know what it's like to value something, put it out there, and have the world look at it and say, eh, I don't give a damn. You know, I think every human being needs to know what that's like. I've also, I think I've had uh, personal like personal success, uh, not not monetary success, but uh, in using composing composing music and and doing artwork as well, uh, as as far as creating my own voice. Uh, and then it, it all just sort of links into being uh, creative and productive as well. At the genesis of this deschooling project, I had almost imagined that there could be a tactical guidebook on how to deschool, which would have uh, ten simple steps that you could do to get through the process. And as if we just talked for the last hour, um, it doesn't feel like it can necessarily be as simple as that. And, and that the, the actual process is something that just requires a lot of uh, personal and customized analysis and contemplation and you know deep thought and self-evaluation. Is that true? Is, is my instinct there right that it's it's got to be a much more personal and organic process that's probably specific to each person or could it be boiled down to a 10-step checklist well i i think yes and no not only to this topic but to all uh forms of, of personal development i i think i think the process has to be incentivized internally i i, I don't think that giving people any 10-step process is going to uh, by itself, do it all for them or motivate them to to deschool their mindset. But I I, I do think I, I do think that um, it would be good to have a resource like that, and 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 I'd be more than willing to to chip in on the creation of something like that. I, I do think there are a lot of people out there who have made up their minds to take non traditional paths, whether it's college opt outs or parents that are going to unschool or even an adult who has decided to embrace uh, an abandoned dream or, or to just reclaim their personal power. And, and they're looking to learn from the, the distilled lessons of those who have taken a similar path. I think there's great value in it. I think there's great promise in it. And, and even in this conversation, we've given a few practical tips that people can employ at, at, at overcoming some of the challenges that come with, with de-schooling yourself. Like the conversation uh, strategy, for instance. You know, I, I think there are a lot of things out there like that. Well, it's funny because when you start thinking about de-schooling, you know, one of the one of the projects that I had thought about working on at one point was actually a de-schooling course, which sounds a little ironic when you start to think about it. Yeah. We we fall we fall into this mindset that, oh, there's something we want to do. There's a project we have to undertake. And and you know, not all classroom based learning, not all not all course based learning is necessarily bad. The the primary the primary negative thing about school, and this is the thing that I I want to overemphasize throughout all of our discussions, is the coercive aspect to it. As soon as you add coercion into any any form of education, it becomes school, right? So it has nothing to do with, oh, I'm sitting in a classroom, I'm taking a course, anything like that. It's it's the coercive aspect because that's the, that is the elephant in the room with 
any aspect of education that you're talking of school that you're talking about. So there is this temptation to automatically move to using the ways of learning that we think of through school and applying those ways of learning to de-schooling. And that's probably like the easiest way of marketing it. That's the easiest way of consuming it. But the reality is, and I've just come to accept this more and more, there are uh, are a couple of things here, right? Because one, de-schooling is... A is actually like kind of a, a a negative process, and I don't mean negative in the sense that it's like pessimistic, but negative in the sense that you are what you're really trying to do is you're trying to develop a better relationship with learning and a better relationship with all those aspects of yourself that are connected to learning. So those are like your career, those are your family, those are your children, those are uh, you know education generally speaking. So I found it more useful personally to emphasize this process of personal development over a a window of time and then also focus personally on developing that ability to learn, unlearn, and relearn rather than trying to think of it in terms of the negative of, okay, I need to remove certain things. Well, yes, there are certain things I do need to remove from my psyche, but it's probably better to work towards the positive ends that I know that I'm aware of and that I can work towards. And in the process, those things that I need to remove will slowly work their way out. If you had to give one piece of advice to somebody for what they can do right now, that piece of massive action that somebody can do as soon as they turn off this podcast, what would be the one thing that they should go out and do? Go create something. Go build something. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if you can sell it or not. It doesn't matter if it's pretty or not. It doesn't matter if you can build a career off it. It doesn't matter if you will ever build a second one or a third one. Doesn't matter if people laugh at you or praise you. Doesn't matter if it has anything to do with anything that you will ever do again. Go build something. Create a website. Start a blog. Write one post, even if you never write another one again. Build something. Build a logo. Start a video game. I don't care. Create an ebook. Build anything. Just do something. Because there is a message that you send to yourself when you build things. A message that says, I take myself seriously. And I'm here to make an impact. I'm here to make a difference. I'm here to craft my own story. I'm here to write my own narrative. I'm here to take charge of my own life. There is no substitute for building things. And more importantly than that message you send to yourself, when you build, you transform yourself. There is a way you change who you are and what your relationship to the world is by making things that it can't happen in any other way. Don't go sign up for an online course. Don't go read another book. Don't go ask any more questions. Just pick any damn thing in the world and go build it. Thank you for joining us. You can share this podcast and learn more by going to www.deschoolyourself.com. You may promote this series by rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Host Zachary Slayback is the author of the book, The End of School. Jeffrey Till is the author of the book, Rise Above School. Both are available in hard copy and Kindle at Amazon.com.